Hebrews chapter 1. Today we'll begin with verse 5. Read with me. Follow along as I read. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5. For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you, and again I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, And let all the saints of God worship him. And the angels say, and of the angels he says, who makes the angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. These past few weeks we've been learning about angels as they are revealed to us in the word of God. But really, the goal of this study is not to bring us to a place where we are marveling at the supernatural nature and power and glory of the angels, but rather that by the Holy Spirit's power, we would be brought to see that the Lord Jesus is more excellent than all of them. He is more excellent than any angel because he is not an angel. He is very God of very God. You see, the whole point the author is making is that while the angels are indeed great and glorious, Christ Jesus is infinitely greater. Infinitely greater. That is not hyperbole. That is not a preacher overstating the case. The Lord Jesus is infinitely more excellent than the angels. And he is greater for five reasons. Number one, because he has a better name. Number two, because he has a better standing. Number three, because he has a better nature. Number four, because he has a better history. And number five, because he has a better destiny. And starting from the beginning, by way of review, he has a better name because God calls him what? Son God calls him son. And to which of the angels did God ever say, Today I have begotten thee? You are my son. None. None. He's never given that name to an angel. Second, he is more excellent. He is better because he has a better standing. Because it's clear from the Old Testament that God has commanded his angels to worship him. And we see even here in verse 6, and when he again brings the firstborn into the world, we just finished the Christmas season thinking about the advent of our God in the person of Jesus Christ born in a manger. When that happened, the author is saying, he said, let all the angels of God worship him. Let all the angels of God worship him. He is no angel. He is God. He is God. And so from the very beginning, he has a better name because he is called son. He has a better standing because from the Old Testament, it's clear that God commands all of the angels to worship him. But that's not all. There are three more reasons. 
Three more reasons why Jesus Christ is greater and more excellent than the angels. Not only does Christ enjoy a more excellent name and a higher standing, but number three, Christ has a better nature. He has a better, more excellent nature. Look at verses 7 through 9. And we've read portion of this, but let's read it again. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. If you'll notice in your Bibles, there are sections that are printed a little differently. And that's because each of these sections, they're capitalized, usually put in a smaller font and capitalized all the way through. It indicates that the author is quoting out of the Old Testament. We'll see that some of the quotations are a little different than what you'll find in your Bible because this author, whoever he was, was not quoting out of the Hebrew Bible. He was quoting out of the Greek Septuagint, which is one of the clues that this is likely not the Apostle Paul. Nevertheless, we see that while angels are servants, Jesus is sovereign. The angels are servants, but he is sovereign. Their role is dynamic, to be sure, but he is deity. That's the author's whole point. Jesus is not just a created being. He is not a created being. If there is anything that has been created, it was created by him. And that includes these angels whom the Jewish people would have held in such high esteem because, I will remind you, in two places in Scripture, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, we learn that the angels were the ones who ordained the law. They were the ones who in some capacity brought the law of God to man. And so in the Jewish mind, angels were second to, only to God. They needed to know that Jesus is greater. Here the author, in an attempt to persuade his readers by Scripture, quotes four Old Testament texts, seven in all, but we've already covered three. This is the fourth, the fourth Old Testament text, and it comes from Psalm 104, verse 4. And in the Hebrew Bible it reads, and in your Bible it says, He makes the winds his messengers and flaming fire his ministers. And in the Greek Septuagint it says something very similar. It says, Who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. That's a little bit different in the Greek, but the point our author is making, I think, is that the angels are God's servants in the world very much like the wind and the fire are servants of God. And we've seen that here in Texas these past few weeks. God speaks and the wind and the rain come. God speaks again and out pops the sun. He brings the snow. He takes it away. He does as he pleases by his word. And so it is with the angels. He says, come, and they come. He says, go, and they go. He uses them to bless by his grace. He uses them to judge by his grace and for his glory. Like wind and fire, the angels are simply messengers or servants of God. 
And this corresponds exactly with the nature and the role of angels. They are created beings who were brought into existence by God to be servants to his sovereign will. And that's what we see throughout the scriptures. And I want to go back into this a little bit because we've already seen that angels were created by God and not eternal. That is, they did not exist from eternity past like God. They were, however, created before the world. As Job reveals, they sang together with joy over the creation that God had just made. We also saw that they were created in vast numbers that John describes in Revelation in these terms, myriads of myriads and thousands upon thousands. But there's more. The scriptures reveal more about angels. First, this morning, I want you to see that angels are powerful. They are powerful beings. Psalm 103, we won't have the luxury to turn to all of these scriptures, but I want you to at least have the opportunity to write them down. We'll look at a few. Psalm 103, verse 20, refers to them as mighty ones who do his bidding. 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 calls them powerful angels. Genesis 19, you're familiar with this story. You remember that God comes to Abraham with two angels and tells him that he is going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. But Abraham reveals that his nephew Lot is there. And so God sends the two angels to rescue his nephew Lot. And when the perverse men of that town, you remember, come and see these two angels go into Lot's house, they come to the door and they demand that these angelic beings come out so that they may have their way with them. But the angels spoke, perhaps, or waved their hands, perhaps, or something, but it struck all of those men with blindness so that they groped in order to find the door. Angels are powerful. We see it again in Matthew 28. You remember the resurrection of Christ? How was the, the stone moved away from the tomb? Angel. And I don't think he had any problem moving it. I don't think he had to get a couple of his buddies to come and, and help him move this thing. I think he walked up and said, out of the way. We just need to show that the tomb is empty. Move. Angels are powerful. 2 Kings chapter 6, you remember the old story when king, the king of Aram was frustrated with uh, Elisha and kept, who kept spoiling his plans. Whenever the king of Aram went to make a raid or do something against the nation of Judah, Elijah was there and he, who was a prophet, would hear the voice of God and God would tell him everything that uh, the king of Aram intended to do. It so frustrated the king of Aram that he finally went to his servants and said, which one of you is a traitor? Someone is telling the Israelites everything I intend to do. And one of his servants says, it's not any of us. Elisha hears the voice of God. God is telling him where you're going and what you intend to do. And so they intended to get rid of Elisha. And they came to his home in full battle array. And Elisha's servant, you'll remember, was terrified. He wakes up, he comes out of the tent, 
They look on the hills, and everywhere they look, there's enemy. The servant is terrified, but Elisha is unmoved. He is wholly unimpressed. Elisha says, 2 Kings chapter 6, Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And the rest of that story is amazing. The angel blinds them. And then Elisha tells the army, follow me. And he takes them to the capital city. They go into the city, this whole army blind. And the people come out and say, shall we kill them? And Elisha says, no, set up a table and give them a banquet. And they feed them. God gives them back their sight. And Elisha says, go home. Implication, you ever try that again, something worse is going to happen. <laughs> Second Kings 19, it's told again, Second Chronicles 32, we read about the king Sennacherib of Assyria who invaded Judah and was about to destroy Jerusalem. And who was the king at the time? Hezekiah. And who was the prophet? It was Isaiah. They saw the king of, king of, um, of Assyria come and surround the city of Jerusalem. They had told them again and again, we're coming, we're coming, you might as well just surrender because by the time we get there, it's too late. And sure enough, they held off and they held off and the army came and surrounded Jerusalem. And what did Isaiah and Hezekiah do? They prayed, God, be merciful. God, be merciful to your people. Be faithful to your promise. Don't destroy us. And what happened? God sent an angel who killed 185,000 soldiers. And the King James, we used to laugh about this when I was a kid, because in the King James it says, and when they all woke up, they were dead. <laughs> you see, the angels of God are more powerful than we can imagine. But they are but children in the eyes of God when compared to the mighty Son of God created all that exists so that nothing that has been made was made without him. Angels are powerful, but there's more. Did you know that angels differ in strength? Some angels are stronger than others. Here's a text I want you to see. Daniel chapter 10. Some of you already know this. Some of you will be shocked. Daniel chapter 10. Here Daniel has been mourning and praying for three weeks, asking God for clarification about what was to take place in the future because the Lord had given him some information that he didn't fully understand. And so for three weeks he fasted and prayed, and after these three weeks he received an answer by special delivery. An angel came. But I want you to see what the angel says. Chapter 10, beginning with verse 10. And behold, here he was, he's in prayer, he's praying, his face is down. And behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, O Daniel, man of high esteem, understand the words that I am about to tell you and stand upright, for I have now been sent to you. 
And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. And then he said to me, do not be afraid, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understanding this and on humbling yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to your words, but the prince of the kingdom of Persia was, was withstanding me for 21 days, three weeks. And behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left there with the kings of Persia. And now I have come to give you an understanding of what will happen to your people in the latter days, for the, vis the vision pertains to the days yet future. You understand what happened? Daniel started to pray. And God got an angel and said, take him this answer. The angel left immediately. But he got to Persia somehow, and an angel stronger than he, an enemy, stopped him and would not let him pass for three weeks until someone stronger than he, Michael, came and delivered him. And he was able to deliver the message. Extraordinary text. We also read later in this passage, we learn that there are two classes of angelic beings that are at enmity with one another. Look down at verses 20 and 21. Then he said, do you understand when I came, why I came to you? But I shall now return to fight against the, the prince of Persia. So I am going forth, and behold, the prince of Greece is about to come. However, I will tell you what is inscribed on the, the writing of truth. Yet there is no one who stands firmly with me except uh, against these forces, except Michael, your prince. Michael, the archangel. There is war in heaven. There are spiritual battles going on around us that we cannot see. And we don't have to see them. And we don't have to be concerned about them. But the Lord, as if having us peer through the knothole of a fence that we might see a little bit of the neighbor's yard gives us a little glimpse of what's happening behind the scenes. Angels are powerful, and angels are different in strength. There are different kinds of angelic beings. Satan and his demons were at one time numbered among the holy angels of God. It seems, however, that because of his sin, he and those who were with him, about a third, were cast out. Isaiah 14, 12 through 15 reads this. How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. You have been cut down to the earth, you who have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven, and I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. Nevertheless, you will be thrust down to Sheol, to the recesses of the pit. The New Testament refers now to angels the angelic host in two categories, elect and evil. Elect and evil. Revelation 12.4 reveals that Lucifer, also known as Satan, fell, and when he did, he took a third of the angels with him. And because of their sin of rebelling against God, they were cast out of heaven as unholy demons of the earth. These are the ones Paul warns us of in Ephesians 6.12 when he says... Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, 
but against rulers, against powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. They are alive. They are real. They are powerful. But they are like children compared to Christ. There is no comparison. And that's what the author of Hebrews wants us to see. They are powerful. They differ in strength. Thirdly, the elect angels are servants of God. They are merely servants of God. Look back. I want you at Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14. We'll get there. <laughs> Why does everyone laugh when I say that? <laughs> Hebrews 1, 14. Here, he's wrapping up his discussion about the angels, and he says, Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? Are they not all Ministering spirits, all of them. There isn't one that is not a ministering spirit. The word angelos in the Greek simply means messenger. And often you see them, like in Daniel 10, delivering messages from God. But that's not all they do. The word ministering here simply means to serve. What does God want them to do? That's what they're there for. Could God do it on his own? Well, sure he could. But he chooses to use his created beings, both men and angelic, human and angelic, to accomplish his will. And only God knows why. Perhaps it's just his grace. Perhaps it's just his mercy that he would want us to be involved in his plan. Do you know that there's not a single person who comes to know the Lord Jesus Christ without another human being bringing that message to them. Why? We're not told, except that perhaps we can surmise. God wants us to know the joy of being co-laborers with the excellent Christ. After all, we are in him, Ephesians says. We are a part of him, not in an organic way, but legally, spiritually, so that everything that belongs to Christ belongs to his bride, the church. Everything he owns, everything he has created, and all of our debt belongs to him. Now look at the verse again, this Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14, and tell me who these ministering spirits are designed to minister to. The text says what? Sent out to render service for the sake of those who will what? Inherit salvation. Who's that? It's us. It's you and me. It's everyone who is a member of the true and living church. What does their ministry involve? It can involve any one of a number of things, or all of them. It involves, first of all, protection. Protection. Psalm 91.11 says, For he will give his angels charge concerning you to guard you in all your ways, and they will bear you up in their hands that you do not strike your foot against a stone. The angels protect. 
And this was a classic messianic text. This was a text that the Hebrew scholars believe was referring specifically to the Christ so that when Jesus was led out by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to face Satan, one of Satan's temptations was to jump off the temple to show how excellent and glorious he is. And his argument was from this text, aren't there angels who will come and keep your foot from touching a stone? Sometimes they protect. Sometimes they rescue. Genesis 19, 16 through 17, the angel rescued Lot and his family. And there are other places. Sometimes they come for encouragement. Matthew 1, 19 and 20. And we read, but when he, that's Joseph, had considered this, he was considering how to divorce Mary. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary to be your wife. For the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, or Jehovah saves. It's the same word in Greek and Aramaic as it is in Hebrew, uh, Joshua, Yeshua, Jesus. It means the Lord saves. You will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. An angel brought that message. Sometimes he comes for, they come for encouragement. Sometimes it's deliverance. You remember Acts 12, verse 7. The angel came when Peter was thrown in jail, and at night he put all the guards to sleep. He went over and opened up all the doors. Even Peter thought he was dreaming. The angel led him outside and set him free. Sometimes the angels are sent for communication. There seems, this seems to be their primary role. And an angel came and stood before Balaam, you remember, to offer a word of rebuke through the donkey. Gabriel, who seems to be God's chief messenger, was the angel who brought word to Zechariah about the birth of John the Baptist through his barren wife. He was also the one who spoke to Mary about God's plan to give her a son by the Holy Spirit who would be Israel's Messiah. Gabriel seems to be the chief messenger. And I'm sure there are many other ways angels assist Christians that we cannot and perhaps never will be aware of. And we shouldn't try to be aware of them. The point here is that all of the angels are ministers to God's elect. You remember in Revelation 19, after John had received most of what uh, the Lord had to say to him, an angel appeared. John fell at his feet. In verse 10, he's, he writes, Then I fell at his feet to worship him. I mean, we're talking glorious. If you're tempted to fall on your face and worship, something glorious is standing in front of you. Then I fell at his feet to worship him. But he, that is the angel, said to me, Do not do that. Don't do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and your brethren and hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship him. And you find that all the way through Old Testament and New Testament. Whenever it's an angel and someone falls down to worship, he says, oh, Don't let anybody see that. Get up, get up, get up, get up, get up, get up. Don't worship me. But whenever it's Christ, even in the Old Testament, when the second person of the Trinity appears and a man falls down to worship, on some occasions, this 
angel of the Lord, as he is called, says, and take off your shoes too, for this is holy ground. Someone will ask, does this mean the angel service today? Of course they do. Of course they do. But there's no use trying to identify them or their work of grace in your life. Don't go around trying to identify that. Don't listen for voices. Don't look for angels. Hebrews 13.2 warns us that we should not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. For by this, some have entertained angels, how? Without knowing it. Implication, they entertained angels, they didn't know it, and they still don't know it. Only God knows and the angels who were there. We need to be so careful of this. It's so easy in our Western society to come up with a new kind of spirituality that gives you the capacity to be spiritual without having to deal with God. We shouldn't waste our time trying to identify the angels among us because God's purpose is to keep them hidden and probably because of our propensity toward worshiping them. It's probably because of our propensity to worship anything that looks marvelous to us. We're simply to go about living by faith every day, praising God for his invisible and manifold grace toward us, the sum of which comes invisibly and imperceptibly through the ministry of angels. If you come and tell me that an angel appeared at your bed this morning, I'm going to have serious concerns because the Word of God, unless you're a prophet, doesn't really allow for that. God is not exalting angels among us. He is exalting the excellencies of Christ. It's the very error that the author of Hebrews was trying to protect against. Don't worship the angels and don't turn back from worshiping Christ to worship something other than him. And listen, here was perhaps the temptation. Every week I try to define it a little bit in a, in a little bit more precise fashion. But imagine this. The people were feeling pressure, perhaps not to deny Christ outright, just redefine him. The pressure was on them to say, well, Jesus isn't God. He's glorious. He's great. He's powerful. He's the best of all the angels, but really, he's only an angel. And if you do that, well, then you can be a part of the synagogue. You can be a part of our community. You can be a part of our fellowship. We're not telling you to deny Christ. All we're saying is change your theology a little bit. Just make a minor lateral shift and say he's a glorious angel, and that'll be okay with us. And that's a lie from the pit of hell. No one who worshiped Christ as an angel worships the true Christ. And that's what this is all about. That's why he spends almost the entire chapter quoting scripture after scripture after scripture after scripture after scripture after scripture after scripture, seven scriptures from the Old Testament to demonstrate that Jesus is no angel. And he is God. He is God. And even the angels that we marvel at worship him. 
And so we see that angels have a very specific and complex role in the economy of God, but it is not the same role that God has given his son. The elect and holy angels of God know their calling, and they delight in their calling. They delight to obey and to serve their king, the one and only sovereign, the Lord Jesus Christ. The author's point in Hebrews 1.7, however, is simply that a glorious and powerful, as glorious and powerful as the angels are, they need to be viewed in their proper sphere and function. They need to be kept in their proper perspective. Yes, they are powerful and majestic, but compared to Christ, they're messenger boys. They're household servants in the kingdom of God. To be sure, they're worthy of honor, but only Christ is worthy of your allegiance. Only Christ is worthy of your worship. Only Christ is worthy of our praise. They are servants, but he is the one and only sovereign who says to one, come, and to another, go, and they joyfully and willingly obey. The angels are like winds and fire, but the Son of God, verse 8, God says, to the Son of God, he says, your throne, O God. Isn't that interesting perspective? I mean, can you not see what he's trying to accomplish here? The angels are like winds and fires, but to the Son, God says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. Here's the fifth Old Testament quotation the author brings to bear on this point, allowing Scripture to interpret Scripture. This time he refers to Psalm 45, verse 6. It's a verse lifted from a royal wedding song. It was written as a song to praise the king and his bride on their wedding day but was viewed at least in part as an exaltation of the coming Messiah who would fulfill God's promise to bring one of David's sons to rule the world forever and ever on the throne of David. By using this verse, the author of Hebrews is saying, Jesus is greater than the angels in as much as the Messiah is greater than the angels because he is the Messiah. He is the one that you have all seen in this text in Psalms. <clears throat> he is their God, seated upon his glorious throne. The term throne here points to his sovereign rule that will never end. His scepter points to his unchallengeable authority an authority rooted and grounded in the perfect righteousness that he set on display for 33 years of human life on earth, having never once sinned. It is the righteousness of Christ that is our only hope. It had to be a human and divine righteousness. And it was. It was. Verse 8, but of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the righteous scepter is the scepter of his king. And look at verse 9. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. 
Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. The anointing with the oil of joy points to the very thing that drove Jesus to the cross to fulfill the righteous requirement of the law against sin. In Paul's words, he endured it all for the joy that was set before him, the joy of being united with his bride, whom he saved by his blood and by his righteousness. That is our excellent Christ. This is our excellent Christ. He is one to be worshipped. He is one to be adored. He is one to whom belongs all of our allegiance, all of our loyalty, all of our joy, all of our praise. And yet some will be tempted to fall away. And that's what all 13 chapters of this book is about. Listen, beloved, the author of Hebrews has more to say to these precious saints about why Jesus is more excellent than the angels, to be sure. But do you understand why he's going to such great lengths to do it? The persecution was tempting them to turn away from Christ, and he wanted them to seriously consider what they stood to, lo to lose. If you turn your back on Christ, you lose everything. If you just redefine him and call him an angel, you still lose everything because you have made a Christ in your own image. You've made him out to be what you want him to be and not who he is. You stand to lose everything. But you know what? Persecuted saints are not the only ones who are tempted to turn from Christ. Professing Christian teenagers in our day are just as tempted to turn away from their hope, just as tempted as these Jewish believers were in the 21st century. Maybe it feels too constricting. Maybe it's not cool. Maybe you don't think it's intellectually engaging enough. Maybe your prosperity has just given you the leisure to question everything. But don't do it, beloved. Don't do it. There's perhaps no time in your life that you will be more tempted to turn your back on Christ than your last year of high school, your first year of college. Because that's when your faith will be assaulted by the allure of human reason more than at any time in your life. But if you turn back, there is no hope for you. If you stand firm, there is joy, unexpeakable and full of glory. But if you turn back, there is no hope. I want you to turn to chapter 3 of Hebrews. In time, we will come to this. Verse 5 of chapter 3, Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which would be spoken later, but Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are. That's the church, right? Whose house we are. What's the next word? If. If we hold fast to the confession 
and the boast of our hope firm unto the end. You see, it's not how you begin that matters, it's how you end. It's not how you start your Christian life that matters. You say, well, I walked an aisle. Well, I made a profession of faith. I believe in Jesus. It's not how you begin. It's do you end well. And he repeats it, verse 14. Here is the definition of a Christian. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until when? The end. You thinking about turning your back on Christ? <laughs> Nothing could be more foolish. You say it'll only be for a little while. You don't know that. You don't know that. Don't turn away from him. Be faithful. Plead with him to have mercy. Plead with him to be gracious and to grant you whatever it is you need to trust him. Don't do it, beloved. Your professors and your peers will try to make the prospects of life without Christ look so appealing. A life without Christ can look and sound so attractive, but don't buy the lie. If you lose Christ, you've lost everything. And in the end, it will become self-evident what a foolish choice that you made. When you stand before God and the Lord Jesus steps before his throne and looks you square in the eye and says, depart from me, I never knew you. But the Lord Jesus is greater than anything you can acquire or achieve in this world. He is worthy of your unfailing allegiance. He is worthy of your unflagging faith. He is worthy of your undying love. He is even worthy of your suffering, church. So don't turn back. Hold fast to your confession. Draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. And keep your eyes fixed on Jesus who is in his person your very great reward. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we praise you because you are indeed in 